0: Welcome to Solution Focused Possibilities Podcast. We want to help you have more productive conversations in whatever area of work or life you find yourselves in. What better way to do that than to invite you into our own conversations as we discuss our Solution Focused practice, our different experiences and findings. We hope you find this helpful, useful and inspiring. Welcome to our podcast.
1: Well, welcome everybody. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, this is a this is a first, actually, for for SF Possibilities. We have our first guest on our podcast, so hey. we are very, very lucky and privileged to have Rosa Wright joining us. Um, she is a highly what is it, Rosa? A highly specialist <laughs> speech and language therapist. Is that right?
2: Yeah that's right yeah I usually just go by a speech and language therapist but thank you for yeah thank you for giving me my full status. It <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: to, has, to has to be done. So I don't know for those who don't know and I, I suppose speech and language therapy is probably like many other fields where there's a wide variety of things you can do with that so what is what does that mean for you what, do you, what is it you're doing?
2: Yeah, um, yeah I think we're one of the less well-known health professions and um, So we're NHS generally, there are independent therapists as well, but most of us at least start off working in the NHS and we're one of the allied health professions, so we kind of sit in the same bracket as physiotherapists, occupational therapists, um, podiatrists, that sort of um, field. so when we train we um, train with children and adults um, we have to be qualified in both and then usually what happens is once you go into your first post you kind of decide whether you're going to work with adults or children and then as you um, sort of progress over the years then you usually fall into a more specific specialism and um, so you might be sort of developing a specialism and then become highly specialist once you have um, sort of you know had a sufficient amount of time really to develop your skills in that area. Um, So as speech and language therapists, we work in lots of different settings. So um, adult speech and language therapists, particularly might work in hospital settings. So they'll often be working with um, people who have had strokes or um, maybe people who've had a traumatic brain injury. Um, We, the adult therapists also work with people who have progressive neurological disorders. So things like Huntington's and major neurones disease, where you can expect a deterioration in communication skills over time Um, as, Pediatric speech and language therapists, we work in a whole range of settings as well. So um, community settings mostly, so that might be um, children's centres, schools, preschools, um, community clinics. There's more therapists kind of moving into different niche areas. So we do have some speech and language therapists working in places like prisons now. But essentially, we work with anybody who has a difficulty with communication or with eating, drinking and swallowing difficulties. So that's kind of the particular wow. part of the job that people often don't know about is the kind of more on the swallowing, um, eating and drinking side of things. Um, but as part of our role, uh, we would work with people with a huge range of conditions. So that might be things like summering, speech sound difficulties, developmental language disorder, autism, hearing impairment, Um learning disabilities, selective mutism. So it covers a really, really broad range.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah, it's massive. Yeah.
2: Hence and so the need for the specialism. So because yeah. obviously, you know, when you're working in community clinics, so say for example, if you're a paediatric therapist, I was working in community clinic for a long time. And um, so I've been a speech and language therapist for 12 years now. Um, and quite a bit of that time was working in community clinic. And in that sort of setting, you will literally see pretty much anybody that comes through the door. And that really mm. gives you a chance to build your general clinical skills. But because there's so many different areas, most people then go on to specialise in one of those and really develop their skills to a higher level. Um, and then they can support other therapists that are maybe working with a broader um case ID.
1: Yeah. Wow. Okay, cool. No, excellent. And within all that experience, like where did solution focused work come into it for you? Like where did yeah. You, yeah. <laughs>
2: Um, so I think it was about five years ago. So after my first maternity leave, um, I went back to that was when I kind of started my highly specialist role. And At that point, I was working um, in Kent and um, my specialism was around um, stammering. So there's a specialist centre for Stammering called the Michael Palin Centre in London, um, which is like a centre of excellence um, and Michael Palin, the actor, um, sort of heads that. He's um, he's sort of one of the key um, people that was involved in setting that up. Um, So they deliver lots of specialist training. So they do do see um, children, teenagers and adults um, but um, like to actually provide therapy, but they also deliver lots and lots of training. And one of the training sessions that I went to, was like a three-day training in lots of different therapy approaches for um, kids of different ages. And one day we really focused on solution-focused therapy. Um, so I, my background was kind of in, I did a psychology degree and sort of very interested in psychology. Um, and so it fitted really, really well with me. It kind of, it felt like a lot of things, um, Really sort of clicked into place in terms of how we could use it as an approach to support children who stammer. Um, but that's kind of given me the opportunity then to use it as a specific therapy, but also as a kind of general approach. So when I'm working with parents, um, With young children, particularly, you're often working through the parents and it's really important that our um, goals are aligned in terms of what they want their child to be achieving at the end of us working together um, and what we think is appropriate. So um, that can be a really useful approach as well. If you're kind of finding that maybe your what you're hoping to get out of working together isn't quite as aligned as you would like it to be. That can be a really useful way to kind of open up that conversation and actually get to a point of kind of understanding where each other are coming from.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I was okay. asked, Rosa, before so before you did that, what was the, the kind of standard way of, of the way you worked before you uh, were introduced to solution-focused practice?
2: Um, I mean, we have a huge sort of range of assessment techniques and therapy techniques that we provide. I think the solution-focused approach um, just really was particularly helpful for the teenage case summers that I'd sort of acquired through developing that specialism. Um, I think that is just really crucial I think getting away from obviously as speech and language therapists we're assessing people um sort of all the time that's that's what we're trying to do and so we can kind of get quite clear ideas of what we think is best for this person or what kind of order we should be working on things um and I think having that approach as an additional tool is really really helpful just to be able to rather than just kind of saying okay so what do you want to get out of this or you know actually really being able to facilitate that at a deeper level and really get to the understanding of that. So I I don't think there was an approach I was using before that that would completely replicate that. I think we were, um, I was certainly in my practice kind of, you know, trying to um, find out from people what their goals were, but I think Solution Focus just offers a whole other um, sort of Mm -hmm. more detailed approach and technique and something to really open therapy with and and sort of guide it all the way through and just keep checking back in.
3: Great.
1: Right,
4: no,
3: right. Really, really. Ben's How got a you, question. If I can oh, no. ask you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we, we all do. We're all <laughs> jumping uh, you can, We all want yeah. see on their faces when they, when they yeah. got questions. Usually, if I ask something, you, you know, watch out for Greg's face when I ask a question. <laughs> Usually, his brow furrows. His kind of stress like, just comes over. He's like, "What is Ben talking about this time?" Uh, Go on, Ben.
4: Let's hear it. <laughs>
3: Uh, Well, I I mean, I was thinking of when uh, when Bieber and I trained in Solution Focus, we um, uh, we trained with a lady called Sarah Northcott, who was um, a research fellow at um, one of the universities in London City University. And she was looking at Solution Focus specifically with uh, people with aphasia. So people Mm -hmm. who suffered strokes and, um, you know, a struggle with their communication. And she did this whole, you know, piece of research around how do you because solution focused is so kind of intertwined with language and speech. Um, she did this whole piece of research on how do you know that someone is working in a solution focused way um, when actually the verbal communication isn't necessarily there or is, or is very restricted. Um, yeah. Which you know, which was fascinating. And um, I was really intrigued with what she came up with. Um, and I was just kind of just listening to you then like some of the things I've scribbled down were, it seems like solution-focused helps you with maybe the order that you work in, um, in terms of asking you know, your clients which order they would like to work in, uh, certainly sort of establishing their goals. And then you also mentioned parents and kind of like aligning goals with parents. So I, I wondered if, you know, solution-focused really helps you with like the other people around the client. So not just with the client themselves, but also their family members and other people supporting them. That was my question, really, whether Solution Focus comes into play in that.
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think you've touched on quite a few things there. So, um, yes, definitely in terms of kind of supporting other people around the child. I think when when you're working with young children particularly, I mean, the, the older they get, the more autonomous they are the more you're working more directly with them. With the younger children particularly, we've often got this kind of person at the centre of it, but then we've got all these other people around them that actually we are probably primarily working with. So we'll assess the child, um, but particularly with young children, um, we are essentially trying to support and um, enable the people that are with the child all the time to actually be able to work with them. So a lot of our work is indirect and more kind of consultative. So that can be quite tricky because you might have several different sets of ideas of what people want to get out of it (laughs) and and you know so you might have like the teacher's view or the preschools view and then the parents view and i think it can just be a useful approach um just to kind of not necessarily I wouldn't necessarily use like the full approach and be kind of doing the scaling and and sort of you know necessarily going through it in in that way but I think just as a framework really to work within to just think okay where where is everybody wanting to to get this um child to so what what are the goals and also really trying as soon as possible to put the child get their voice in there as well and really getting their input too even with even with these sort of little ones um, and sometimes we're having to do that more through like reading their behavior rather than actually kind of them being able to verbally and um, sort of explain that to us I think definitely and also just as a general approach to life to be honest I mean we're working um, in my last job I was um, line manager for um, a few members of stuff and again it can just be I wouldn't be sitting down necessarily doing it as a specific approach, but just having that kind of framework again in mind for um, how to support them you know, in their work and with what they're wanting to get out of their role and you know, how we can kind of help that to happen. I think it's mm. just useful to put, always be putting yourself in that position rather than be thinking that because you've got this specialist knowledge and skills in your area that you necessarily know what is best for them and what's right for them, just really mm. keep putting them back to the center of it. And I think that's a really useful approach to that. Um, but going back to what you said earlier, you know, it's, it's been really interesting to me working with the different cases. So my current job, I'm working with um, young offenders in a um, youth offending service, uh, sort of small youth offending service within ethics. And it's completely different You're trying to use solution focus therapy with those children i found with my stammering teenagers particularly often they were very articulate and their language skills were were really good you know that wasn't the issue for them it was just um, sort of being able to speak fluently and Mm -hmm. often they were um, actually sort of it is not unusual for a personality type to be quite perfectionist and kind of high achieving and really kind of pushing themselves and so disfluency can be really distressing if you're somebody that has got a lot to say and it's not kind of coming out the way you want so With those children, it was quite easy to kind of launch into it using the sorts of language um, that you would be sort of modelling in the training, for example. So when I was using a training package and just kind of thinking about it as a more standard approach, whereas going to the youth offending service, working with those kids, um, you know, there's huge levels of difficulty with language there and the way that we're asking those questions um can be really challenging so having to adapt the language um and I think keeping in mind what you were kind of um saying in the uh in the training package that you know if you if you're not kind of getting the answers that you need then you're not you're not using the right language yet and I think that's quite a task actually for the as the therapist just keeping trying to find ways to do that and also thinking more broadly about you know using a trauma-informed approach so for a lot of these kids school has not been a happy experience for them you know they've really struggled a lot of them have been excluded from school and um, have maybe ended up in specialist provisions where they may be excluded from there as well or kind of on very reduced timetables so it, I think it's quite a sore Spot for a lot of kids, it can be quite triggering to feel like they're being asked questions and they don't know the answer. And so I think that's been something that's been really important. And with this caseload, is to build that relationship to really create a safe environment first and build that trust and be constantly saying, you know, these are strange questions. Like people, people often don't think about this stuff in these sorts of ways. You know, I like had a boy I was working with the other week, and you know, I'd asked him something in one way and it was kind of a struggle for him to get an answer and so I asked him in a different way and he was just like oh, I'm just being really dumb right now and I was like no no you're not <laughs> you know you're not yeah. being dumb. it's not you it's it's this process is strange and unusual and actually yeah. for anybody that's um it, it's sort of a completely different way than you'd be usually asked questions and things so really trying to create that safe environment where they don't feel like they're just getting it all wrong and they can't do it
3: yeah Absolutely. I mean, I think it's perfectly natural for people to kind of say, you know, I don't know to these questions because they are strange. They're unusual, like you say. Um, yeah. And it's when you say about adapting the language to fit, you know, fit the person you're talking with, that's, that's a journey we've been going on, you know, in our training, we've tried to sort of move away from just teaching questions and more sort of teaching intentions mm-hmm. and encouraging people to find like a language that sort of best fits their, their conversations. Um, yeah so I guess with like your clients in the youth offenders you know service um, what are the sorts of ways that you've kind of had to adapt the language or is there kind of any examples you could think of in terms of adapting it I
2: mean so just to give you a bit of an overview so um, I mean there's been a lot of research done over quite a number of years that has consistently shown that language levels for young offenders and people in prisons really low um, so I think um, the statistic is something like a third of young offenders have language levels below that of an 11 year old which considering you know a lot of the kids we're working with are like 17 so that's not to say that their intelligence is at that level their intelligence is likely to be at the level that Um, it should be but in terms of the language skills there's this huge deficit and it can be really tricky because a lot of them um, are very good at masking their difficulties because obviously they have to survive and kind of get through and so you know you've often had quite significant behavioral issues um, for some of the kids so there might be you know like I said sort of leading school exclusions and and other things for them and eventually kind of you know come into contact with the police and then um, entering the youth justice system so I think you know what the the approach that I take is to never make assumptions so you might be faced with somebody that is essentially in an adult's body that you know is pretty streetwise that maybe knows quite a lot more about some stuff than I do (laughs) you know but that actually when you're kind of asking them things you're kind of picking up on okay like I asked that question and the answer I got wasn't really what I would have expected to get back or I'm asking something and the response is coming out and it's jumping here and there and it's really hard to kind of um, to follow the narrative Um, so I think you know in terms of the approaches that we use it's really trying to keep the language as simple as possible setting up like a communication friendly environment so that would be um, sort of just opening up by saying There might be things that we talk about today. There might be words that I use. You're not sure what they mean. So if there's anything you're not sure about, just let me know. Because I think just by setting that out, you're kind of saying... I'm not expecting you to just automatically understand all this stuff. There may well be things and I'll, and I'll give them examples as well, because this is a new role for me in the youth offending service. So although I've been a speech and language therapist for a long time, I have no experience in youth justice and the level of language that is suddenly coming at me, you know, all this terminology and that comes at the kids, you know, they're sort of regularly talking to them about, you know, breaching their, um, their orders, um, Sort of all, all different sorts of language around rehabilitation and restorative justice and, you know, and even even slightly what we would probably consider simpler language like victims don't necessarily know what any of those words mean. And you've immediately made it completely inac- inaccessible for them. And, um, and it's very hard for them to really play a kind of active role in, in actually taking responsibility and taking ownership when they're not necessarily understanding. So, yeah, trying to kind of create a communication friendly environment. Being open and honest, there's things that all of us don't understand or won't or won't know, in, and what we can do in that situation, and checking back in. So, one of the issues is if you're very used to not understanding when people are talking to you, um, you'll just be kind of nodding along, and if you if someone says, "Did you understand?" yeah you know because that's yeah. the that's the easiest thing too it's, it's actually quite hard and makes you quite vulnerable to say no I don't understand and actually some kids are so used to not understanding they don't even know when they're not understanding so that makes it really difficult as well um so maybe kind of saying like you know I've just sort of explained something to you would you be able to explain that back to me in your own words just to make sure that we're both on the same page about what we're talking about so again not, not making it feel like they're kind of being tested but just encouraging them to tell you what I think they've heard so that you can then um, sort of you know fix any issues that are coming up that way um, quite quickly
3: yeah that's great I, I love it when you say like keeping the language simple as well um i think that's you know that's something we always strive for is you know why make this more complicated than it needs to be um yeah and i think that is a solution focused position when you know if a conversation isn't clicking to take this position of ah, that's because we need to adapt our language as the professional rather than are oh, they the client aren't engaging or you know they're not, they're not getting it. I think that's a solution focused, um, yeah, position to take. Wow, I've got so many questions running around <laughs> my head, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll ask one more if I can and then I'll, I'll let the other guys jump in because I'm conscious to take up all the time.
1: Yeah, you gotta let Biba have a turn, go.
3: Yeah, I will. Um, I, guess, I guess my last question is you, you mentioned kind of assumptions um, and I know going back to what I remember from uh, Sarah Northcott's stuff you know some of her guidelines around how do you know someone's working in a solution focused way um, were about the kind of like the mindset that the professional had um, and the way they were thinking about the people they were working with as opposed to actually what they were doing and what they were saying um, so I guess my question is has you know solution focused for you kind of influenced the way that you're actually thinking about the clients you're working with and the kind of mindset when you go in to meet with someone
2: yeah i think definitely i mean it kind of comes back to what i was saying earlier in terms of you know obviously we assess people and sometimes we're having to do that in a very short space of time you know when you're working in community clinic because of the um limited resources that the nhs often has you know we're kind of having to assess somebody and basically say these are your issues, or these are your child's issues Mm -hmm here's some activities, go and work on that. And it's not, you know, we don't have the time and the resources to necessarily be able to kind of go as in-depth as we would like and to set everything up in a way that we would like. Um, But I think it is just, it's really interesting when you facilitate those conversations and you do it right and you do it well, actually just to find out from people what they're wanting to get out of it can be really surprising and sometimes it just isn't what we're thinking you know think often um you know it's kind of easy to get into a bit of a deficit mindset and kind of be thinking well we really need to improve this we need to improve that and actually that might not be the things that are really issues for that person and um you know i think it's it's is just a really good approach to keep centering that person rather than it becoming about well I've done all these assessments and it's showing me yeah. this and on this piece of paper we've kind of got this graph of these difficulties and we need to go here with this and we need to go there with that and I think then you're kind of doing to that person rather than them mm-hmm. actually um, and also for some of these kids you know and adults there's so many areas of difficulty you there's no time in the in the world would be able to kind of you know bring all of those skills up to a level that would help them to kind of function in all of those areas so it's then again thinking well you know and like with the young offenders you know they're even at the younger age range you know you don't get a huge number of 11 year olds coming through the youth offending service but even at that age you know they're essentially finishing primary school you've missed the boat really on being able to plug all those gaps and go back and and it wouldn't be appropriate even if you could because that's not the level of input that they really often need at that stage Um, so I think it's just helpful to streamline and work out okay well what does this person actually want to achieve and then I can look at well what skills have I got within that so if you want to you know if your best hopes are um, that you're going to be sort of in employment and that you're going to like what what do we need to really look at to get there and how can we kind of pick out the most important aspects of that for you to help you get there what so I can use my skills and knowledge to support them to really achieve their outcomes so it's it's still then me looking at well where are the where are the issues or where is this going to be hard for you um but I think it just you know in the in the NHS we really want treatment to be person-centered as much as possible Mm. and that's often harder than it sounds and i think this is a really good approach to actually get there for that
3: yeah so i guess what i'm hearing you saying is like even in a even in a role where you know assessment is necessary you know having some solution focused um principles kind of helps you keep the work centered on the person rather than Mm. centered on assessments and tasks
2: yeah yeah definitely yeah and and, you know an assessment is a really crucial part of what we do and we're often needing to provide you know so for school-aged children we're needing to provide reports where we're saying you know like it's going to affect what level of funding they get for that child Mm. in school so you know there's, there's a lot that we have to do that is more formalized assessment and kind of um and you know just working out where the issues are and being able to kind of summarize that but i think you know solution focus lends itself really well to um, areas where you do actually get the opportunity to build a longer term relationship so if you're able to offer more therapy sessions so particularly so for example a youth offending service you know it's a relatively small service that I'm working in and there's um, two of us sort of creating a full-time post so that actually gives us quite a bit of time to work face-to-face with those kids um, so this sort of approach is ideal because it we have the time to build those relationships and then to actually kind of use that to its full benefit but I think you know even for colleagues who maybe don't have that luxury of time I think it's still really worth it because if you've got that approach in mind you might not be sitting down using the whole approach but if you're just kind of you've got that structure in mind you can then be thinking about that and maybe just asking some questions you know sometimes been really helpful just to de-escalate difficult parents with um, phone calls with parents Mm. where it's kind of you know they're just really stressed and anxious about their child and where things are going for them I and mean, actually just using that approach can be helpful and um, just yeah. to make sure that we're on the same page
3: yeah we, we actually just um, recently recorded some training for solution focus for teachers and mm. part of that training was um, how do you use some of these questions and thoughts to de-escalate phone calls with parents are yeah. <laughs> to complain about the amount of homework or that sort of stuff um, so yeah, that's and you know that's really I think loads of people will be encouraged hearing you because people can get um, you know stressed about how does this fit with another job role that I have to do you know when when I have to do these bits of paperwork or I have to do these assessments how can I fit solution focus in it somehow somewhere so I think people will be encouraged with that and uh, yeah and I love hearing you talk about using it with the the wider kind of audience the teachers the preschool staff the parents. Um, you know I've been reading a book called More Than Miracles recently and that talks about um, you know solution focus being inherently you know a systemic approach because it concerns itself with all those interactions you know day-to-day interactions that you know these young people have with with parents with caregivers with teachers etc so yeah thank you and I will now be quiet because we're just going (laughs) to get (laughs) angry we'll see how long it
4: lasts (laughs) (laughs)
0: to pause the podcast briefly just to tell you a little bit about our online training. We have lots of different resources for you online, some free and some more comprehensive to give you a really good understanding of the solution-focused approach. If you want to find out more or sign up to our newsletter, go to www.sfpossibilities.org.
4: So Rosa, kind of thinking back on your journey since you first um, heard about solution focused approach and after your one day training, um, what sort of gave you hope or maybe confidence that that could be something that you could do? And kind of looking back on how you tailored the approach to your line of work so that you can have conversations with the people that you're working with what have you found specifically useful what have you maybe um what are you maybe doing less so to sort of um, walk us through your journey how you made this approach work for you and with you
2: um yeah i think well as soon as i you know just in the room hearing about it i was just like yeah yeah this is yeah love this <laughs> um so I, I think I was really motivated just to try it um and it just sort of fitted really nicely because I had this um new case load um, so I'd done a lot of work with children who stammer in the past but the teenage aspect was new for me and again you know with teenagers who stammer with very young children who are stammering um it's not unusual for it to just resolve itself, um, and there are approaches that we can use and therapy approaches that we've got that actually um, can, you know, can resolve that for children who are very young. The older you get and the, the longer it persists, you know, it essentially is probably not going to go away for you, and so then it becomes a process of kind of um, of learning to live with it and manage it and kind of how you're going to incorporate that really essentially into your into your life rather than trying to get rid of it. Um, so, I think again, this was just sort of a really helpful approach um, to helping. of the teenagers that i was working with really work out well you know where do you want to get to and i think for them the kind of the good enough aspect is really really important because their goal might be just to stop stammering um but then you know i think building in that kind of buffer of okay well you know where would be good enough for you um is really helpful and a really important sort of discussion point for them to really help them to get comfortable with the idea that this is probably isn't going to go away but you know looking at how we can sort of manage that um I think in terms of actually like on a practical level starting to use it the main thing for me was just not being shy about writing down what I was going to say so um I just you know I think generally as a professional you can feel a bit self-conscious about what you've got written on your paper, but no one's really reading it. <laughs> you know, so I literally was just writing down the questions that I wanted to ask and I would write down um, kind of prompt questions. And I still do that now actually, because I think again, you know, with, with some of the kids that I'm working with at the moment, because, it's much more challenging in terms of helping them to actually access the language i need those prompts and i need that you know and i maybe need to jot down a couple of different ideas so either suggestions that you've given in the training um there's like different ways you could phrase it or um you know other things that I might have kind of thought of myself and um, just so that I can keep referring back to that and I think um, that was something I really encouraged when I was training other people in using solution focused therapy in my um, sort of job in Kent when I was in the stammering role and um, was just write it down and refer back to it and don't be afraid to you know like sometimes I've kind of started asking questions and then I thought oh great yeah I've got what I needed move on to the next bit and then think no hang on actually that that isn't and so just not being afraid to go backwards and just kind of say okay so just thinking back to what you said a moment ago about whatever um can we just go back to that for a minute and think about that a little bit more so um I think it's kind of not expecting to be perfect at it first of all and I think that can be hard when you've seen people like in your training like in the training that I received when you see people doing it so well it's like oh yeah it looks really easy (laughs) you know and then obviously you're having to adapt to what's coming back to you and that's the hard bit really is kind of you know you can memorize these questions but it's like okay well everything that each person says is going to be different and some people might have latched on to what you're getting at really quickly and the language might have sort of facilitated that and then other people might be really needing more support and guidance so kind of that kind of to and fro Um, so with the summer in case that I had, I really used it as a as a specific like that was my therapy for quite a few of those kids. So what I would maybe do alongside that is some other therapy techniques. So um, looking at their summer in more detail and kind of, you know, using some other therapeutic approaches, but essentially solution focus was the therapy approach that I was using, whereas at other times I've used you know maybe a little element of it or it might be something that we've discussed just kind of a little bit more around goal setting but then not necessarily something that we've come back to and, and looked at in loads of detail um so it's varied quite a bit really in terms of how I've used it and, and I'd say now going back to sort of a different case so so in between working with the um with the sort of stammering case I then had a job in early years which was completely different um that was working with children naught to four so you know, obviously I wasn't using that approach with the children, but that's where I was kind of maybe using it more with parents. Um, and now in my youth offending role, I'm back to being able to use it as a specific um, therapy approach. And it's something that I really want to try and build in um, more generally to their, their processes where they're trying to, um, center things around the child but it's not really working at the moment because the language levels are up here well seriously you can't see my hands but up here (laughs) up (laughs) up towards the ceiling and you know the language levels are much much lower um so yes it's kind of something that i think i want to introduce into other aspects and not necessarily just my direct working with those kids but actually thinking about how other people are using those same panel meetings and things how they can use this as an approach To actually, you know, really try to find out from the the kids what they think will help them um, and what they need and where they want to get to.
4: Wow, if I may ask you, like, suppose a miracle happened and you kind of (laughs) found a way to embed those principles and ways of working into the whole setting, what might you be kind of noticing would be different? That would kind of tell you.
2: I think what I would notice is just the the children would be much more empowered to um, actually kind of contribute their ideas. At the moment, the idea is that, um, you know, there's meetings where the children are asked questions um, that are supposed to kind of help them to contribute what they think are factors in their offending things, but the way the questions are asked are incredibly complex. So it might be what sorts of, um, what sorts of factors in your life do you think might be contributing to your offending? You know, it's just so broad so open you know it might be like a 15 year old with language levels of more like a you know nine, 10 year old and they're supposed to be able to look at their life sort of almost from above to kind of understand how their life might be different to other kids lives which is obviously really challenging because they only have their own experience and then put into words um, what they think they need to support them which they don't necessarily even know what support is available so it just tends to lead to lots of I don't I don't know I don't know you know so I think my yeah, if, if a miracle happened and and they were, you know, they were sort of using that approach then I would hope that the, the the children would feel more empowered, that it would really build their sort of self-esteem and their ability to be seen as an individual and as a person rather than kind of, you know, somebody who's just being told, right, you're going to do this, you're going to have this number of sessions of this, you're going to have this number of sessions of that. And it's not a criticism of the people that are doing that work, you know, it's really challenging work and they're absolutely doing their best within that. But I think the systems and the structure at the moment are aren't facilitating that they're not enabling those kids to really have a voice and to really be at the centre of it and I think the concern for me is that while they're not at the centre of it they're not um they're not really taking ownership you know they're being told it's like another situation they're going into where they're being told this is what you're going to do um, rather than actually thinking I'm doing this to achieve this this and this Mm -hmm. or this will help me in this way Um, they're not really there at the end point if that makes sense
0: yeah. I'll just jump in with a question, Greg. Sorry, Greg. I know this is probably not going anywhere where you wanted to go, and you plan this, is it? <laughs>
1: I, I, had, I had no plans, Jamie. Sorry. Right. I think after this one, though, we should give
0: Rosa a chance to ask us some questions since we've been grilling yeah, her yeah. for a little while now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this might be a question that might um, give others a chance to jump in as well. You, you spoke about the best hopes, Rosa, and I know that's obviously a big part of solution-focused uh, approach. I'm just wondering how that works within kind of the speech and language area as well as the kind of the justice system where things are either being done to them in terms of punishments or whatever you want to call it within the justice system and also where perhaps there's kind of biological reasons for some speech language stuff that they have no ability to kind of control potentially um is there ever occasion where there are best hopes which are not achievable for both of those reasons and how do you kind of deal with that
2: so I think in the, in the youth justice side of things, I'm probably at too early a stage. So it's so far the kind of best hopes I've had have been completely appropriate. Um, mm-hmm. I think in terms of stammering, yes. So like I said, you know, obviously for a lot of these kids, their stammer is not going to go away, but their best hopes might be um, to be able to speak completely fluently. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think, the, I mean, I don't know. I, and I might be, um, I might be completely wrong about this. <laughs> but I suppose I'm now thinking, oh God, now I'm saying this to groups of people that know a lot more about it than I do. But I think in a way, as much as the best hopes are important, I don't really mind too much. Like if they say they, their best hope is to be completely fluent, I feel like what I definitely don't want to be doing is to be saying, no, 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 that's not, that's <laughs> not going to happen for you. <laughs> like that's just, you know, that's not, no. And, um, so I just kind of think, well, we'll go with that. If that's what you want, then mm. that, you know, and it, we're talking about miracles. So, you know, <laughs> you know mm. if a miracle happened, then, you know, that might be what would happen to you. So it's then kind of thinking I'm more interested in the steps that they're, or, you know, the descriptions that they're coming up with really. Um, because I think, um, say for example, you know, the boy that I'm working with, his best hopes are to have a job and, um, and in his words, to stay out of trouble. And that's great but i like i don't have any control over whether he gets a job at the end of it and actually to some extent he doesn't have i mean there's definitely things he can do to help himself but he doesn't necessarily have a huge amount of control over like you know and and that won't be the out like the outcome measure for me that won't be the measure of success Mm -hmm. i think what's helpful is just to see why he thinks that's important to him like hearing him kind of describe what he thinks that would give him um actually a lot of the things that he wants to get from a job he would be able to get from other ways of behaving in his life so you know like one of the things I want to explore with him is just his um his position sort of within his home so you know he's living in a family he's got much younger siblings his mum works his mum is a single mum but what is he contributing in a way to that household and I think actually some of the feelings of like pride and um just having achieved something and kind of like what he talks about in terms of wanting to kind of almost almost like come home at the end of the day tired and feel like he's really earned his relaxation Mm. time there's other ways that he could actually achieve that and I and I think like hearing him describing some of those things gives me the opportunity to explore that with him like you know maybe in paid employment in which case fantastic and obviously that needs to be an aspiration for him long term but you know, if we, you know, obviously there's so much going on in the in the world at the moment. Economics, lots of people are being made redundant. You know, now he's got a criminal record. That he's not going to be probably top of the pile for getting a job. Um, but what can he do that still fits within his goals in the meantime? How can he achieve some of those things? So I think, um, yeah, I don't know if that's the right answer, but I kind of <laughs> I don't worry too much about the about the best hopes unless it's something that you know is just so far out of it that I feel like to get to and i don't think i've ever really had that to be honest where it's just so off the scale that you just think well the conversation that we're going to have around this just isn't going to be useful i haven't Mm -hmm. really had that it's always been something within the realm of okay like that sounds vaguely sensible so um and i think even within you know i mean obviously i suppose if some i mean I'm, i'm working in the community so these aren't kids that are in prison but i suppose you know if like if you had that kind of situation where it's like you literally can't achieve your best hope because you've been, you know, like say it was an adult offender and they're going to have a life in prison um, and their best hope is to be released from prison. Obviously (laughs) like, again, I can't, you know, no one can magic that for them. But I think that process of like, well, what would that mean? And what can they kind of achieve within that, within the environment that they've got, I think is still, um, still helpful.
1: I think that's a very good answer Rosa I, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you that's that's a awesome. brilliant <laughs> <answer. Yeah. laughs> I love that because yeah especially when you think about like because the answers people do give us sometimes you kind of think you could a lot of I mean depending I mean we've probably seen other professionals do it to them as well like no you can't do that you need to focus yeah. more on this and to have someone just say well if that's what you're after then let's talk about what that might look like for you mm. and and as you say even if that that exact hope doesn't happen there's a lot of other things that could happen that would kind of put them on on a good path for them so mm-hmm. yeah i think who are we to within reason who are we to judge what is or isn't achievable for someone
3: yeah so, yeah oh. i i always remember oh here we go again sorry yeah, guys. Ben, he, <laughs> he, he, he's on it he's on it yeah yeah you have this one before so i'll keep it short but I, when it comes to this topic i always remember um the client I was working with, he said his hopes were to get his, his job back, his house back and his girlfriend back. And uh, at the time he was sofa surfing in a, in a bit of a pickle. And I sat there and thought, well, pff, that's probably a bit outside of my remit. I'm not sure I can help him do all those things. So I sort of moved the conversation on and we went down a different route. And then the uh, lesson for me was that a few months down the line, he had his house back and his job back and his girlfriend back. And uh, it was a bit of a wake-up call to me of, just as you said there, Greg, who are we to judge, Yeah, you know, what someone's hopes are and, and what they can go on to achieve. Um, I'm going to throw a question at you, Greg, put you on the spot for a minute. Go so, for it. So earlier, Rosa mentioned um, the good enough question yes. as, as a way of helping to kind of manage these, these best hopes and move that conversation on. So I'm wondering, someone might be listening to this thinking, oh, that sounds really interesting, but... What, what is that? Good. How do I do it? So, yeah, there's a question for you. What is the, the, the good enough question and, and how would you do
1: it? <clears throat> this, is, this is my take on that. You guys might have a different opinion. Um, I think for me, I, I, I get it when I start using scaling questions. So I do the whole kind of zero to ten. Ten is, you know, life the way you've just described it. Everything's happening the way you've just described it. That's ten. Zero generally is the opposite. Where are you now? Um, often people will say probably anywhere from three to five on, on average. And then it's, it's kind of that bit of, okay. And, and, and where would be good enough on that scale for you? And then they give, they give an answer probably like seven, eight usually. Um, and then all of a sudden they're a lot closer to that, I think, than they, than they thought they were. And so you've got a whole load of options then of, do you explore? Well, I suppose you probably do both, but you can explore the, what's keeping you up at the number you're at now. And what would be some of the signs that, you know, around good enough, around that seven or eight, what would you be noticing then? So, yeah, it just kind of shrinks the scale, I think, a bit and kind of makes that outcome they want to get to that that little bit closer. I don't know if that's how everybody else does it, but that's usually where it comes into it. So, to my work.
4: Here's another question for you, Greg. When you, um, <laughs> when you ask where would be good enough and then the person says something, Uh, would you ask it like that or would you go with where would be good enough for now or would you put any other words into that?
0: Mm. That's a good question. It will from now on. (laughs) (laughs) I'm
2: going to have to think about that every time I ask that now.
1: Um, I don't know. I think I just say where would be good enough for you. Yeah, I don't know. Do you do I'm I'm assuming then you use that you use where would we get enough for now
4: I, I think I do both and thinking about it I don't know so I might experiment with both and see if that makes a difference
1: Ben how do you ask it get get another um, opinion
3: uh, where would be to be honest I don't I don't use it that often but um I tend to go with what are your best types and then what difference would that make um which leads to usually something a bit softer. But um, I do like it as a question. People do usually say seven or eight on the scale. That's where I use it. And I probably phrase it, you know, where would be where would be good enough? I probably don't even put for you or for now, just where would be good enough? Mm. Um, yeah. What Rosa, what sort of, um, like, you gave the example of the stammering and, like, you know, some people saying that their hopes were for, you know, that to be completely changed and completely gone um what sort of answers like have you got in the past when you've asked people you know what would be good enough so you've done the hopes and then you said and what would be good enough
2: um i mean it, i think it depends like sometimes i'm surprised because that's the best hope that actually good enough is is yeah probably at about an eight um other times I think I did it with one girl and hers was like probably nine and three quarters yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> but I think yeah I, I kind of again I think it's just it kind of gives me insight into where they're at where they're kind of pushing themselves to maybe how perfectionist they are um, and I think like you said it's just a nice way to as the as maybe as the therapy goes on because I, I would use that I'm, actually I'm interested to in ask you Ben about how the fact that you wouldn't always use that the um, scaling but because um, I use that sometimes to kind of check back in as we go and sort of you know not like every week like where are we now where are we now but you know kind of trying to just gauge or sort of refer back to it and say so you know you put yourself here but you've noticed that there's been these small signs of change and so you know if we're maybe going to be doing therapy for a while kind of check back in at a midpoint and also I use them as a in a not in a not sort of very um, exciting way but kind of as outcome measures so for when I've worked with kids um, you know being an HS, we always need to prove our worth and show that what we're doing is actually making a difference. So I kind of feel like that's something tangible. So can I ask you sort of, yeah, how, like, I'm interested in the fact that you don't use the scaling questions and kind of, um, do you need outcome measures as such, like, you know, or are you using, getting outcome measures in a different way?
3: Yeah, I guess, um, so so the good enough question is one that I don't use that frequently. Um, And I think the reason for that is I feel like if the, the difference question does the same or a similar job for me so if I ask someone what are your best hopes?" and they give an answer that feels and sounds outside of the remit so if they say you know I don't know standard example if I want to win the lottery okay and then I just ask them what difference would that make if you won the lottery um, well, I'd be able to buy like a really nice house and a really nice car. Okay, if you had a really nice house and a really nice car, what difference would that make? Um, well, I'd start to feel like good about my life and, and better about myself. Okay, so if as a result from our working together, you started to feel good about your life and better about yourself, would that be a good use of our time? Yes, and we sort of go from there. Um, so for me, I think asking the difference question does a similar job to to good enough and If I've asked that a few times, then I don't feel a need to. Greg's got that look on his face. I was going to say, does anyone
0: (laughs) know Greg's face in the top right? This is this
3: is always what happens, Rosa. There you go. Um, (laughs) It makes it more interesting. So, So can I just um,
2: so you do use the scaling, but you just wouldn't ask where's good enough, or you don't use the scaling?
3: Yeah, yeah. So I com I commonly use the scaling. Um, I use a lot of confidence scales. That's probably what I use most of. So. Naught to ten, your confidence of achieving these hopes. Okay, Um, so I was working with someone the other day whose hopes we sort of recontracted best hopes because it was like a new school term, and she said that her best hopes were to manage to come into school for a full week, full five days a week, and so rather than doing the usual scale of, you know, so where are you now, naught to ten, and her saying, well, I'm at. Three out of ten because I've only come in for two days this week or something. Um, I changed it to a confidence scale, so not to ten. Ten out of ten is complete confidence that you can make it in school for a full week, and zero out of ten, you know, no chance, never going to happen. Where where would you scale your confidence? Um, and that certainly for that conversation, I felt that was more helpful. Um, she gave a score of you know sort of five or six, and then it's the usual process. You know, so what are all the things happening already that allow you to score five or a six uh, for confidence rather than being at a zero? Lists a load of stuff. And then if your confidence was to increase you up to a seven out of 10, how would you know? What would that look like? Um, yeah, and in terms of outcome measures, I guess I'm slightly influenced by, you know, as many people are by the institutions that we work for. Um, so if I'm doing private work, I will use the scales Um, you know as a as an outcome sort of indicator as well Um, but when I'm working for uh, children's services we're asked to use something called the the youth star or outcome star so we do that at the very beginning of our work you know before we even started a conversation and it's just a a six pronged star you know one to five on each prong which asks young people to score themselves on things like well-being hopes and dreams, communication. Um, And then when the work comes to an end, we ask them to fill out another one of those as well. And now I'll let Greg tell me off.
0: (laughs) It's not telling off. I just just strongly disagree with your opinion. Uh, Yeah, Ah, basically. (laughs) Thanks, Jay. That that sums it up. (laughs) Well,
1: no, I suppose it's that, like, I would never ask someone what's good enough. At least I don't think I have. I don't know, but never is a strong word. I don't know that I would ask someone what's good enough when like exploring their best hopes but I think I use good enough specifically around numbers on the scale And I don't think you can use difference questions in that way to still kind of see what's good enough if that makes any sense but I think it just is a yeah I don't know I think we need to argue about this more (laughs)
3: <laughs> I, I think what i'm saying is if i've if i've used the difference questions a few times earlier on in this conversation then i feel less of a need to ask um good enough later on
1: okay okay i'll let you have that that's a style thing i'll, I'll leave you we could park that one <laughs> in yeah. there to base it later oh uh, cool right um rose it- over to you. Do you have any like burning questions or things you want to to fire away at us?
2: Oh um, <laughs> I'm, I'm interested. So the the sort of research around um from City University. So so you sort of said that's something that you're kind of looking at building in um Um, yeah, I guess I'm just kind of interested. I feel like this might help me out. (laughs) Um, just, you know, in terms of thinking about, um, for people who do have language difficulties, whatever the kind of cause of that sort of how, um, how that sort of influences the process. So, um, is that something that you're looking at building into your sort of training and, and your sort of, you know, the guidance that you're giving?
3: Yeah, I think, um, you know, talk, talking about it now, I'm thinking it would be really interesting to see if we can uh, get Sarah on to another one of our podcasts to talk about that. Um, yeah, and I will, I'll ask her permission to share the kind of her findings with you. Mm. Um, but it was, you know, was similar. I think this, you know, you spoke about order earlier and one of the ways of, because it's about finding ways to give the client as much kind of, control over the session as possible and to let them lead it as much as possible um so I think order of things as you've already touched upon so it might be that okay we have to do x y and z but I can give you control and choice over what order we do those in Mm -hmm. Um, and also increasing there was a lot of sort of increasing choice as much as possible so for example I remember Sarah talking about if there was an activity that involved you know symbols in terms of you know people pointing to them to to make their their wishes clear. It was about trying to increase the choices as much as possible, um, and also allowing them to sort of create and add in their own symbols into that pack, so, so say they were working with a sort of pack of symbol cards that helped the, the professional and the client to communicate. That pack of symbol cards would be constantly growing, I think, with things that the client had added in themselves. And the idea was to offer so as much choice as possible and, and the order as well. But I think, um, yeah, it'd be really interesting to, to get her on to talk about it more. Um, it was a fascinating question of, um, because solution focus was born out of observation. So it wasn't something that was devised you know, in an academic setting and then as a theory and then applied. It was observed by practitioners just working with clients on the ground and then sort of looking for what works and let's do more of it um so it's a really fascinating question to think so when um you know verbal communication is restricted what are you observing to ensure that this is a solution focused piece of work how do you how can you tell if the professional is working in a solution focused way when verbal communication is limited So, um, yeah, it's a fascinating question. and I think that it deserves a a podcast of its own, probably.
4: Mm,
2: Yeah, absolutely. That sounds really interesting.
4: We could definitely, if listeners uh, are interested, talk about different um, tools to use other than language and talking when we're working with, say, younger children or groups or um, people who are not um, willing to share, as in concrete words and sentences for instance some cultures where individual um view isn't really favored but it's more collective view so how do you ask questions then
2: Um, so it could be yeah no it sounds really interesting yeah suddenly thinking of all different ideas (laughs) (laughs) yeah
4: Yeah. talking is just one of the ways of communicating isn't it and there are all other ways how we can connect with each other Mm. yeah
1: You might have to come back again, Rosa, and tell us more (laughs) more about those ideas as you you practice them.
2: (laughs) Well, I'm just thinking, you know, some of the, probably some of the people who, whose goals and ideas you want to get the most of the people that find it hardest to express them because Mm -hmm. it's sort of the least obvious in a way. So, um, and they're most likely to just be done to rather than engage, you know, sort of active participants in their own care and their own, yeah sort of choices and
1: things so yeah it's really interesting yeah Yeah, brilliant cool are there any other i'm mindful of time and how difficult it's going to be anyway for jamie to have to edit this down into (laughs) a reasonable amount of listening time um are there any other thoughts or ideas of burning things anybody wants to ask anybody else
3: I feel like we should invite Rosa. I feel like this needs another conversation. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. maybe we invite Rosa back and see if we could get Sarah on as well and do a do a yeah. joint podcast. That'd be great.
2: Yeah. Well, and you probably get completely different. I mean, you know, like I said to Greg, I'm certainly not putting myself forward as any kind of, you know, great expert in solution, but it's you know something I'm really interested in and I have used, but I know there are definitely speech and language therapists who've used it more in and in just in different settings. So I think there's kind of yeah. Mm. Um Lots of, and I I guess it's the same for all of you, isn't it? Like you're obviously all working in different settings and the way that you're using it is, I'm sure, different. Um, Yeah,
1: definitely. I think the more we discuss those differences, the more ideas I think we we tend to generate. I know from my standpoint, when you mentioned writing questions down in your notebook, that's exactly how I started. I still, (laughs) you know, it was like, okay, if I get stuck, remember the scaling question, scaling question. And Yeah. yeah, so the number of things, and I think it's important for people to be able to hear everybody on different points of their journey whether how much they're using it or how little or wherever people are at with it it's yeah it's just good to know as you say you don't just go from learning a training to doing um, it how people are doing it on the training yeah. everybody's doing it in their way and we can learn from everybody that's the oh, best part yeah, i think about right. about these discussions so cool brilliant well rosa thank you very much for joining that's us nice. thank you Thanks, rosa. and thank, you. thank everybody for listening and yeah Stay tuned for more as we as we go. All right, see you later.
3: Awesome. By the yeah, way, Greg, what's what's our website?
1: What's our? Uh, I I know uh, what the website is. It's you guys that always forget what the you website is. Yeah. www.sfpossibilities.org.
0: <laughs> oh, so hoping you get that wrong then. <laughs> Just saying,
1: that, saying it saying with a little too much confidence. Was I? <laughs>
4: This makes perfect
1: absolutely yeah. next next time it's uh, somebody else's turn <laughs> <Your>
0: turn. <laughs> yeah thanks rosa
1: that's
0: great no that's
4: okay
0: uh, uh, no, thank
2: you for inviting me and thanks so much for being so generous with your um with your training that i mean share it with my colleagues it was very much appreciated i've got lots of uh, brownie points from the youth justice therapist <laughs> <laughs> for, uh, yeah for allowing that so thank you really appreciate it
0: So thank you once again for listening to our podcast. We would love it if you could subscribe or leave a review. It really helps with our visibility and getting our name out there a bit more. And remember, if you want to know more about us, some of the training that we offer, or some of the upcoming events, then check us out at solutionfocuspossibilities.org.